Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Some good news, pretty much, for travelers this long weekend. WestJet just managed to avert a strike. They reached a last-minute deal with the pilots in the early hours of yesterday. So what did the pilots want? What did they get? And what does it mean for us the next time we fly? Dr. Geraint Harvey is a professor of human resource management at Western University, specializes in labor issues, especially in the aviation industry, and we have him here. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Harvey. Oh, you're perfectly welcome, and thank you for the invite. All right. So let's talk about the pilots, what they, what they got, what they wanted, because when I grew up, a pilot, it always seemed like a very glamorous job, almost a superhero in some ways. It was, and it was also seemed like they were paid very well. Uh, is that a reality or is that something that has faded with time? It was the same with me. Um, you know, 30 years ago, uh, maybe a little more, this, this was a profession that was very secure, very well paid. It was a prestige job that people wanted to do. Sadly, uh, along with deregulation, these things have changed. This is not that kind of job anymore. And that's why we're seeing um, a supply problem for these people. And that's why we see in situations like we've, we've had in WestJet. And sadly, I suspect it won't just be WestJet where we, we see these kind of problems emerging. Yeah, and it seems like something that happens in all careers, you know, like I think of projectionists at movie theaters. Uh, they used to have to be the scientists who could work these huge machines, and now it's just using a computer. But the thing with pilots is that they're in charge of a plane, so it seems a little bit more important. And do you think that there is, there, there's kind of a, a, a disconnect between how important and how important it is for this job to be about safety and what these people are, are being paid and how they're being treated? I think it's a, a very important point. You know, when you, you're doing this kind of job, you have responsibility for hundreds of, of lives. You know, the, the, the reference to, to souls, you know, all your passengers. It's a huge responsibility and mistakes here can be catastrophic. It, it can lead to fatalities. Unfortunately, it's an incredibly safe industry, but that's thanks in no small part to the professionalism and training of, of these people. And in, a, in some ways, they're like elite athletes. Um, their career can be over in a heartbeat because the industry requires such high levels of um, physical and mental health that as soon as there are any problems, that license is gone. And when you think about how much money these people invest and how much time they invest, you know, we talk about $100,000 or thereabouts to, to get a commercial license and the amount of time, and that can be over, as I say, in a heartbeat. And, and the, the, unfortunately, the pay and the conditions have, have just been eroded over time. Certainly over the last 30 years, 
that has just it's changed. It's no longer this draw for the the strain and and all of these kind of negative aspects of the job um, that's involved. Yeah, and I, I guess flying a jet, a passenger jet today, is very different from flying a passenger jet twenty five years ago. Uh, what do you say to to people who say, "Well, these planes are are foolproof. The automation is so effective that uh, that it's not as important. The the pilot it doesn't play as important a role as as he or she used to." Well, we unfortunately in the industry, as safe as it is, and it is a hugely safe mode of transportation, um, there are very few accidents in this industry. But we have seen some um, uh, some accidents in, in the certainly the last five to ten years, and, and there have been um, at least some um, technological issues involved, and maybe it's some, some element of um, pilot involvement as well. But this idea that these things are wholly automated, that you don't need somebody in the flight deck is, is simply, you know, is, is simply not true. You know, this is, this is a highly, a high reliability industry. You need professionals in that flight deck because, you know, if something happens, you need somebody who can cope with that problem. So as automated as it, it becomes, as, uh, as high tech as it becomes, this professional in the flight deck is going to be necessary, and we, we've we've got proposals currently being discussed about the um, the single pilot operations. You know, reducing the numbers from from two to one. Um, I can't see that happening anytime soon. There are huge objections, and understandable and reasonable objects, objections to that happening. But even still, you know, acknowledging how far technology has gone, this is still um, nonetheless demonstrate the need not only for somebody in that flight deck, but somebody, a remote pilot to support. Um, as I say, whether we will actually see single pilot operations, I, I can't see it anytime soon, but that still acknowledges the huge importance these people play in the aircraft. Yeah, and you were saying single pilot operation. And from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, that there would be a co-pilot during takeoff and landing, but that co-pilot would go and rest for the rest of the flight. Is that how that works? Yeah, well, there's a number of proposals underway um, where support might be provided um, either on approach, on takeoff, or during the flight if there is incapacitation or if there are other problems. Um, so there are a number of different discussions underway in terms of, of who is required and, and when they're required um, and so on. But I think at the heart of this, and this is you know where the concern is for somebody who doesn't particularly like flying, like myself, I'm not a particular fan of getting on the aircraft. I want to know that there are there is that level of of skill at the front if there's a problem. Yeah, fair enough. We're talking to Dr. Geraint Harvey, a professor at Western University, specializing in labor issues, especially in the aviation industry. So tell me, what did the pilots want that they weren't being offered and what did they get? Well, the second question um, I can't answer because the details haven't been, to my knowledge, at least haven't been um, publicized. Um, in terms of what they wanted, uh, I think pilots at the airline were, were asking for an improvement in terms of remuneration because terms and conditions across the board, uh, not just in WestJet and not certainly not just for pilots, have deteriorated over, over the last 30 years. So there was, there was a, a question of pay 
and the pay is variable depending on the location of the pilot. I mean, the comparison south of the border is often made, I mean, it's a different context, and comparisons are very difficult and fraught with problems, but there is a huge difference in terms of, of salaries and terms and conditions. But there were other factors with WestJet, which has grown phenomenally. When we think this, this airline was set up in the 90s as a low-cost airline, has now absorbed swoop, is now flying, was flying just in the in the west of Canada, is now flying routes, international routes, a much bigger entity than it was. Um, and as a result of having this, this subsidiary as part of the airline, there is, um, or at least was, and I don't know whether this will exist after the, the agreement, but almost a two-tier system in place because it depends on who you're flying for, whether it be Swoop, whether it be um, whether it be WestJet, then that would determine the, the terms and conditions of employment. Now, that is a real concern for employees because it can be used in order to, uh, as a threat, it can be used in order to get concessions from staff. And I'm not for one minute um, saying that that was the case, but it can be used and it is a concern. Then there's also the, the, the major concern in terms of the um, pilot attrition at the airline. So WestJet has lost hundreds of pilots over the last few years, which then makes a problem in terms of scheduling for those pilots who remain. So what the pilots were looking for was, you know, some level of stability in terms of um, scheduling and rostering. They were looking for improvements uh, to the, the terms and conditions of employment. And, and one of the myths I, I really would like, and, I, and every one of these interviews I've done, pilots in Canada are not paid astronomical amounts. This is not a very well-paid group looking for more money. That's not the case. For everything that's involved in this job, it's it's not a phenomenally well-paid job. So you've got those those um, uh, those you've got those three aspects of the job that pilots were looking for improvements on. Right. And so what does this mean for us, for passengers? Um, I, I just kind of a vague question, but uh, do you think this is a win for Canadian airline passengers? It's a really important question. Um, I think that this agreement, obviously there are some passengers who have been affected by the cancellation of flights because of the um, lockout. Um, there are some people who have, who have been affected. There's a lot of disaffection. I've seen it in the news. People are really upset. Um, I think for, for WestJet going forward, I think this has provided um, some level of stability and, and should give some consumer confidence in terms of uh, of what you know, the the stability of operations is in the short term. I suspect um, not just in Canada but elsewhere we will see a lot more of um, these kind of um, actions undertaken as employees. You know, we've seen what the pandemic has done. Lots of people have, have given up their job. They've you know, life's too short. There are things that are more important. Now, the one thing with the airline industry, it needs a certain level of staff in order to safely operate. And so this can create a major problem for airlines. So I suspect we will see more of this elsewhere in the industry. Let's hope um, not in Canada, but we may well see um, more of these disputes and more disruption. Yeah, and it's definitely an industry that seems to be getting a, a bad rap from the public. And uh, hopefully our relationship with uh, flying will become a little more friendly over the next few years. Well, yeah, and it's in all fairness to, to the people operating this industry, it is incredibly complex. This is not a straightforward industry to, to manage. There are so many complex parts of this industry that 
you know, I, I can understand people's frustration. Uh, I'm certainly not, you know, denying people that, but this is such a complex industry. And, and the one thing that, that surprised everyone, I think, when the pandemic ended and, and commercial airspace opened, what did we see? We saw, um, I think it was called revenge travel. These people had this pent-up right. desire. To, and as soon as they opened airspace, what did we see? Full aircraft. And that caused a major problem as well. The Alberta government closed 12 provincial parks and recreation areas ahead of this long weekend. Uh, officials are asking people to be smart if you're out in the wild because statistically, a ton of wildfires are started by people every May long weekend. And this weekend, it is crucial that they not happen. And uh, we've got somebody there in the thick of it in Whitecourt, Alberta. It's uh, Global Global Calgary anchor Blake Law. Hi, Blake. How are you doing? Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Yeah, so you're in Whitecourt. Uh, how, first off, how's the air quality where you are? Oh, it's brutal. It's uh, really, really thick smoke. We've been breathing it in since yesterday. We have our uh, N95 masks with us, thankfully, because uh, we actually have here in this area, just and especially up the road in uh, Fox Creek, where the fire is really encroaching on the town, uh, like ash falling from the sky. So really thick smoke. Air quality is is horrible. It's at a 10 plus right now. And uh, it hasn't uh, improved, certainly, over the past couple of days. It's still been uh, very, very bad. So I guess where you are, you could describe it as ground zero in some ways. Well, for, for this for this fire, certainly. There's, as you know, uh, a lot of them burning across the province, certainly uh, further north uh, of us. There's, there's a lot happening around the Slave Lake area and uh, further up in Peace Country. Um, but yes, in this particular area, uh, I'm in Whitecourt right now. We were in Fox Creek or just just outside Fox Creek uh, this morning where the Eagle Complex fire has been really raging for two full weeks. And uh, that has shown no signs of slowing down. In fact, it's gotten uh, larger. It jumped the highway on Thursday night into Friday morning. And so that caused a whole lot of issues as far as the wildfire uh, reaction from crews on the ground. And it has been slowly getting closer to the actual community of Fox Creek. Uh, at last um, update, it got within uh, one kilometer of the town boundaries. So uh, a lot of concern around what the weekend has in store uh, for Fox Creek. Uh, we just today got kind of a closer look at some of the lines of defenses, if you will, around that town, uh, big fire guards um, that were built up with bulldozers, uh, water lines surrounding the community, sprinklers on rooftops, the whole nine yards, as they're uh, very concerned over what the weather will do and if the wind will push the fire even closer to town. I've been reading a lot of accounts of people who have been evacuated uh, and I think mm -hmm. the numbers were close to like 29,000 people had been evacuated. About half of them were able to go home. But I, I, I just can't imagine how devastating and traumatic that would be. And what have you seen? Who have you talked to and what kind of experiences have you uh, seen? Well, we've crossed paths uh, here in Whitecourt with a number of people from Fox Creek and they're uh, they're a really friendly bunch. Honestly, they've, they've kept their spirits kind of in a good place. Uh, I think that's because uh, the town has been 
communicating with them quite regularly, uh, trying to keep them updated on the latest information. And, and also White Court, sort of as their neighbors, has taken them in with open arms. They've thrown barbecues for evacuees and things like that. But no question, it is very worrisome. You know, people are very concerned about just how close this fire is. And, uh, you know, you do have those lulls in information. And when, you know, at last word, you heard that, okay, the fire's a kilometer away from, you know, my house. That's not an easy thing to, you know, wait for the next update and, and see where they're at. But uh, I, I will tell you that the support for the crews that are on the ground has been absolutely tremendous. The, uh, the town actually put a call out yesterday for uh, words of encouragement, uh, you know, messages of support on their Facebook page. And they took all those comments and sent them directly to the digital billboard there in Fox Creek. You know, Fox Creek's uh, a ghost town right now. There's no one there. Uh, but there are fire crews, you know, buzzing around uh, trying to shore up their defenses. And so on this digital billboard by the Sportsplex, they're seeing and reading these messages of support from the people who have been evacuated, just sort of trying to will them through to the end of this fight. Yeah, it's it's amazing because I think back to to experiences like that, like this that we've had, you know, Fort McMurray and then mm -hmm. um, in uh, Lytton in B.C. in 2021. I mean, the town was pretty much destroyed. And it, as awful as that is not to downplay the the devastation, but it, it is always amazing to me the way people come together. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And we're seeing that play out, you know, all across the province. You you have these communities that open their doors to people who were evacuated at a moment's notice and have them come into these centers or these, you know, churches, these parish halls, and they've got cots on the floor and or just, you know, everyday people in that area opening their own doors, their homes to uh, folks who have been evacuated, uh, you do see a lot of those stories of people sort of coming together and uh, supporting their neighbors in times of need. And the fire crews are working so hard. Have you talked to any of those people? Because I just wonder how they do it a lot of the time, because the, the conditions are, are so challenging and the hours are, are, are terrible. And uh, I just mm -hmm. wonder how they do it. Have you talked to any firefighters? Yeah, we could. In White Court here, actually, at the end of our day yesterday, we, we drove down from Fox Creek back into White Court. We were uh, gassing up the vehicle, and uh, a big uh, Alberta wildfire truck pulled up beside us. And the crew came out. They were just blackened with soot and uh, had obviously had a very long day. And so we were just sort of chatting back and forth. And um, the one gentleman, he's actually a local from White Court and part of the uh, wildfire team here, said he is on day 18, I believe he said. And um, so, and they know that they're in it for the long haul, right? And that's sort of the job. So um, they treat it very much like a job. They're very professional about it. Uh, they, they, you know, they're experienced. They've done this before. Um, I imagine it is a little bit different knowing that this uh, is happening just 45 minutes down the road uh, to your neighbors, uh, as far as that uh, wildland firefighter from White Court. But we also ran into... Uh, Actually, the hotel that we're staying, uh, the, the Continental Breakfast, was packed with a crew from New Brunswick. Um, and they were, they were all smiles. They were happy to be here, happy to help. Um, so, yes, it's an extremely demanding and grueling job. And they are long days and they are consecutive days, you know, weeks on end. This one has been burning for two weeks straight out of control. Uh, so, 
yes, it's a hard job, but uh, they're, they're keeping their spirits up. And they do have a lot of help. Um, this is a priority wildfire. The Fox Creek wildfire is a priority for Alberta wildfire um, as an organization. So there's a lot of resources here. We've seen helicopters passing overhead almost constantly and even uh, some military apparatus on the ground as well. So we've got some soldiers helping out too. How far is White Court from Calgary? From Calgary, it's uh, about five hours or so, uh, two and a half hours up from Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And uh, how how is the air quality in Calgary these days, today? Well, when when we left, it was pretty bad. Um, I believe, uh, I know Edmonton is pretty socked in with uh, thick smoke. Uh, Calgary was improving at the end of the week. We did at the start of last week. Uh, we we finally got a whole bunch of this uh, wildfire smoke from north of Calgary that it came down and it really sort of socked in. Uh, the city, but it's sitting at uh, five on the air quality scale right now, so not too, too bad. And I, I'm reading about how a lot of this smoke is uh, going across the border now into the U.S. Mm-hmm. Even, even in Chicago, they're starting to notice it. Um, so I, I got g- a message from a, uh, from someone in Wisconsin who said, uh, what's with all this smoke uh, and, and has been kind of following along with the local coverage just to see, uh, you know, where it all originates from. Yeah, I heard Wisconsin is one of the worst spots. So, so this weekend is obviously crucial. A lot of people are outside and I'm guessing people are not going to make the same mistakes they make usually on a, on a May long weekend because traditionally a lot of fires are started on this long weekend. But what is the, what is the, the main area that people are watching right now? What is there one place that people are really concerned about? Well, and I mean, one thing that was uh, touched upon in the last wildfire update was uh, the Crown Land camping. That's a very popular thing to do over the May long weekend. You know, a lot of the provincial campgrounds have been closed and they have control over that. They can keep people out and, you know, fire, check on fire bans. It's much more easy to kind of keep track of and enforce these uh, these fire bans and these off-highway vehicle bans. But on Crown Land, you know, there's so much uh, public land out there that people like to use out here in Alberta, uh, certainly in central Alberta. And uh, that is sort of uh, the, the concern for this weekend is that people may not take the threat uh, seriously enough and, and think, you know, oh, maybe this, you know, we should be able to get away with it and, and take their campers out into the woods and, um, and, and light some fires. That's, uh, I, I have to tell you, we saw yesterday, we, we were along uh, Highway 43 by Fox Creek, which is closed down because the fire jumped uh, the road, and we saw firsthand as we were driving along with RCMP how fast these fires flare up. Um, so that is certainly the big concern. That was a message going out to Albertans uh, yesterday was to play it very, very safe for this long weekend because resources are stretched thin as it is. We don't need any more human-caused fire. And what's the weather forecast like for the next three days? Well, where we are, it's uh, hot and dry today and tomorrow, which is why today is going to be a very important day for this uh, Fox Creek uh, fire. Uh, And we've got a little bit of gusty wind. But uh, from what I saw, there is some rain in the forecast for the end of the weekend and on Victoria Day. So the hope is hold on 
till then, uh, make sure that the fire guards hold and really just uh, fingers crossed for the wind to cooperate because that has been really the wild card these past couple days. It uh, on Thursday and Friday fueled uh, the fire and pushed it in different directions that uh, that boots on the ground were not anticipating and um, and pushed it closer to town. So that is what they're worried about today and tomorrow is those winds, but uh, holding on for some rain in the forecast come Monday or Sunday night. Are they concerned about thunder? I know in BC they are. They're expecting, they're hoping for some rain maybe on uh, tomorrow or Monday. Uh, is is thunder a concern? Yeah, yeah, there's, I, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the lightning and the threat of that lightning sparking new fires. Uh, that is uh, certainly... Uh, on the minds of, of, of the crews on the ground as, as they're working away here um, because that rain that's expected on Monday is expected to come in the form of, of thunderstorms. So, um, yeah, that is definitely a concern. Uh, they need the moisture, absolutely, though. Um, so so rain would be a big help, obviously. If, uh, if the lightning comes through, though, that's just more fires that they're going to have to deal with. We're talking to Blake Log, Global Calgary anchor, covering uh, the fires in Alberta. He's in White Court. So, so how does one cover a fire? Like, what, 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 it, what will your day today be like? Well, uh, our day, uh, uh, my colleague Derek and I, we uh, we started pretty early. We were doing some live hits for the for some shows out. Uh, you know, Calgary, Edmonton, BC, uh, making sure that uh, the viewers here were informed throughout the morning. And then it's, uh, it's trying to get in touch with the folks on the ground here. You know, we have uh, evacuees set up at evacuation centers in White Court. We've uh, talked to them. Uh, we are speaking with uh, wildfire officials today. Uh, we had access to the town itself and spoke to the town's fire chief just to walk us through all the preparations that have been made as far as fire guards and water lines, uh, sprinkler lines, things like that. Um, so it's really trying to get uh, to the areas affected themselves. Obviously, you need to play it safe. Um, we got really close to some fire yesterday, but we did so with RCMP officers providing an escort. So they you know, we're at the front of our convoy and at the back of our convoy, making sure we didn't get stuck anywhere. Um, so we're, we're very safe about it, but obviously you need to go where things are happening. And so that's what we're trying to do, kind of going back and forth between White Court and Fox Creek itself and uh, trying to give the most up-to-date information um, and making sure it's verified because that has been, um, you know, obviously a lot of people hear a lot of things, uh, you know, people talking communities and, and a lot of it's true and accurate, uh, but, you know, we, we try and rely on the officials because they have their briefings with uh, crews on the ground. They have, you know, helicopters that go up in the air to assess the current situation. Uh, and so we're, we're always in contact with them and trying to get the most up-to-date information from them. It was a few weeks ago that Budweiser Beer about five, six weeks ago. They, uh, they, they, you remember this story? Bud sent out a few cases of their beer to a trans influencer named Dylan Mulvaney. And she posted a photo of herself with Bud and all hell broke loose. People boycotted it. 
Kid Rock shot it up with his AK-47. Very tasteful, considering it was right in the midst of a rash of highly publicized mass shootings in the U.S. But anyway, that's another story. It caused a stink, this Budweiser campaign. Two executives actually had to take a leave of absence. Uh, apparently, it, it affected sales. So you think Miller Lite would have learned something. But no, they're wading in with a campaign which perhaps they're probably hoping will cause uh, a big stir. It's a new ad targeting sexism in beer ads. Here's, here's a little taste of that ad. Here's a little known fact. Women were among the very first to brew beer ever. From Mesopotamia to the Middle Ages to colonial America, women were the ones doing the brewing. Centuries later, how did the industry pay homage to the founding mothers of beer? They put us in bikinis. Look at this Wild. It's time beer made it up to women. So today, Miller Lite is on a mission to clean up not just their but the whole beer industry's That's comedian and actor Alana Glazer. She was in Broad City. Very, very funny. Uh, the spot goes on uh, to Miller's. They just call it the bad shit to good shit campaign, which involves turning old advertising material into compost, feeding that to worms, using the resulting fertilizer to grow hops and donating those crops to women brewers. And the stuff there, the old advertising material is the classic old sexist beer ads. But the message has angered many on social media who are now calling for a boycott of the Molson Coors product, which is Miller Lite. And Nushin Warren is a marketing professor at the University of Arizona Eller College of Management who specializes in the use of political messaging. Thanks for being here, Nushin. Sure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, first of all, the, the fact that, that it's controversial to point out that the history of beer advertising has been somewhat sexist. The fact that that is controversial is hilarious to me, but I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, well, um, I want to first to answer that very shortly. I don't think these are this particular issue is political. Rather, it's a cultural change response. And... Um, to point that out, I want to just say there are three points I'm going to make. I try to um, answer them, explain them quickly. So okay. one is that these marketing actions are mostly business decisions and inevitable because of cultural changes. And it, this type of actions also happen in other businesses' strategies. For, for instance, finance, if there are changes in economy, they're just less publicized and less understandable due to their intricacies. And also, um, the most important part is how should firms manage these actions? And it's interesting, as you just said, and I read constantly, is that people ask, did Miller Lite not learn from Bud Light? The, the point here is that Miller Lite actually unveiled this ad before Bud Light. Oh, really? It just didn't get publicized. It happened in March for Women History Month, which actually makes that ad more relevant. And then April 1st was then when Bud Light did, did their ad. But because of the hype that happened in the beer industry advertisement, this ad resurfaced, uh, which is interesting. And I actually believe that Miller Lite learned something from Bud Light and learned it well, which was how to react to this backlash. Right. Bud Light put their um, decision makers for this ad on leave. 
which then made backlash from conservative, older consumers, backlash from liberal, um, younger consumers who didn't buy it anymore. The, the ad, perfect. Whereas Miller Lite, as of now, is standing by um, with their decision makers and their um, marketing um, executives, which is at least make them um, not lose one side that they were targeting. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, so how much do you think these ads are made to stoke the controversy? And how much are these ads sincerely just meant to make a, a good point? A cultural good point. I think both, and there is a reason for it. Um, generally, I think companies are realizing that when culture is changing for survival in the long run, they have to respond to it because um, culture changes happen with newer generations coming in, and wanted or not, or I don't know if this might offend our older generations, but the reality is that the market of consumers that are older is dwindling and the market of new generation is coming in. And that's the job of firms to understand. And that's the way they survive that, okay, I need to pay attention more to my potential consumers coming in because inevitably I'm going to lose my older and more loyal consumers at some point in time. Now, our newer generations, even male consumers, which, again, I read a lot that people say, don't you see that beer is a male dominant consumer market? And then you're trying to alienate male consumers. In reality, is that male consumers that come from newer generations are raised and also work in a different environment that older generations did. So the way they're looking at objectifying female or generally women role is different. So the they different the response is going to be different. Um, so what, that is the part that is business. So we want potential consumers to come in. And these are also consumers for firms uh, that are one, predominantly male consumers like Gillette that did it several years ago. And now beer is that consumers are moving towards more local small businesses. They're moving towards craft beer. Mm-hmm. So we need to be able to to position ourselves in a way that we also have the same value. So that is the business part. The actual value part, I think, comes from the fact that firms are now more uh, inclined to or maybe even legally concerned to promote and hire women or other minorities in higher level management, which when they come in, now it's a true value that they want to pay attention to. Um, So I think it both goes hand in hand. Right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting commercial and uh, it's it's quite funny. We're speaking with Nushin Warren, a marketing professor at the University of Arizona about political advertising and all these advertisements that come out and uh, just cause outrage among people. And uh, it's often older people who are outraged. But we did get a text uh, that said, OMG, meaning O for O. M millennials and G grow up. So I guess he, this person, I, I don't know why I automatically assumed it was a he, but it was uh, somebody who said OMG stands for uh, oh, millennials grow up, but I'm not sure if that's really the case. And uh, you may agree with me here, Nushin, uh, talking about young people, because it's often the older people who seem to be outraged by this sort of these newer ideas. For example, this Miller Lite ad that uh, targets sexism in beer advertising. 
Um, sure. One, um, I want to point out that when I say mostly older generation, um, and as you said, I, I agree with you that older generation are the, the main group that are enraged or upset about such ads. This does not mean that I ignore a large group of younger people and in young generations that have conservative values and they also are upset. Mm-hmm. But business is a, a kind of like a number game, right? So the way that businesses look and estimate their target market is where is the most largest number of consumers coming in. So I'm not ignoring the larger uh, the group of um, younger consumers that might be upset, but the reality is that the proportion of younger people um, that are upset is a lot lower. Um, we have more older generations that are enraged. Now, you did ask me why we have this enraging culture now coming in. Right, this outrage machine. mm -hmm. I think that if you look at history, historically change happens when society or a large segment of society are um, set up and they are enraged and there's an outrage happening and then there's a push for change. Now, generally speaking, that has been a liberal leaning and progressive change happening. And because for a long time, a status quo was conservative leaning, there was no need for outrage in the conservative group. Uh, But now it seems that the liberal changes are rapidly happening. The status quo, previous status quo is not a status quo anymore. So kind of following the same approach, you need outrage. That to become publicized, to push for um, another type of change, or basically going back to what was the older, the old values, and because it's still in media, in journalism, in many places, the older generations are the main decision makers. Um, that is going to be what we see in public news or public media. The difference is that that there's going to be a war between that and then social media that is mainly um, held by younger generations. Right. And you kind of make it sound like a positive thing that that uh, the the sort of backlash is often for good. Uh, and for example, this this commercial is is trying to shine a light on the traditional sort of sexist advertising of mm-hmm. beer. Um, but what about things like like I, I think of Kid Rock? shooting up a Mm -hmm. bunch of beer cans with his AK-47. That seems to me almost like uh, Kid Rock making a commercial for himself. It doesn't seem like it's particularly progressive. It's more like that's just his brand and he's getting his brand out there. It's almost like more advertising to me. Um. One, I think that backlash, uh, I don't think backlash is favorable. I think it's inevitable. And when you do the whole meaning of controversy or political um, ads is that they're partisan, right? So there is controversy. There is going to be backlash. Is backlash good for some people firm itself and then people like Kid Rock that they can actually use that for publicity. Maybe I'm not saying that he does because I don't know his intentions, but I'm just saying that there is a an opportunity for publicity when 
such things happen. It also might be that they're truly, they want to entice people who agree with them. So they have conservative values. They want to make it the voice loud and give other people who are upset permission to get involved and be upset. The reality is that businesses know this. There is no way that you're making an ad in this time and day when Gillette already did it and now you are doing it and you think that there's not going to be a backlash. Firms know that. But in decision making, you need to look at costs and then benefits. And it seems that firms are looking at a little bit ahead of time and see that benefit or at least expect it. Can they all be wrong? I mean, it's possible. I don't think the possibility is very high. So do you think the future of uh, consumerism is that uh, products will be either on the left or the right? Because I think of Chick-fil-A in the United States, the, mm-hmm. the sandwich place, clearly identified yes. as a right-wing leaning company. Maybe Tesla even now, you know, that is now mm-hmm. aligned with Elon Musk. And maybe that's yeah. starting to be considered right-wing. And then other things are left-wing. Do you think that we're just going to see more and more of this? Again, I look at it historically. I look at the time that women's rights was new or in the United States, the racial equality to some extent at the time that happened was very new. That was the time that this issue is very controversial and partisan and maybe even firms would get involved. It was less firms because there was a culture of business should stay away from politics. However, all of those controversies at that level died down through history. Right. So because people get used to it, also, again, newer generations are not even facing what was there before. They're facing the new um, culture. So even now, I think that that's where we are. We are in a transition that, yes, for a while, ads are going to be um, problem ad media, people, social media. They're all going to be a lot of controversy polarized. But as time moves moves on and these changes become more of a status quo, the controversy of these are going to die down. And then we have to look for newer changes coming in and newer platforms. Because 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we didn't know that social media is going to be, Twitter is going to be a place that all these discussions happen. We don't know what the 20 years from now is going to bring. Yeah. And I guess these social media platforms allow for these advertisers to be a bit more irreverent, like this Miller Lite, this sort of bad shit, good shit. They use that word. And 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 it's clearly something that's going to probably live on the Internet as opposed to regular television. So I guess it's only going to become more uh, intense. Yes. So even if if you look at that word and the way that the the, um, narrative is, right, it's clearly talking to newer generations. Um, Our older generations generally were, I would put it, politer. They would not use profanities or curse words. Younger generations do more. So these are all, to me, signs that these ads are not targeted for the old consumers. And because now social media is a lot less restrictive about what you can say, what words you can use. Obviously, it's going to give firms a, not free reign, but at least a lot looser um, limitations to go there. 
when you think about uh, chat, GPI, that everybody's talking about, all this artificial intelligence that uh, is, you know, threatening to completely change the world, the financial markets seem like a natural area where these supercomputers could swoop in and take advantage. All that data, profits, projections, and transactions made in seconds. But is it safe? Uh, does it create market volatility, volatility that, uh, just could do some serious damage? Uh, Pawan Jain is associate professor of finance at John Chambers College of Business and Economics at the West Virginia University. And Pawan is with us now. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, so let's let's talk about AI because I assumed that uh, artificial intelligence and the supercomputers were already a big part of the whole financial system. Would you say that's true, right? That is correct. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, in what ways? Uh, in what ways now are are supercomputers, you know, running the financial markets? Well, a majority of trading today happens um, through these supercomputers. Um, in fact, a lot of exchanges provide something called a co-location facility uh, where uh, you bring in your computer. If you're a sophisticated trader with a, some AI-based algorithm, that is going to make decision on behalf of the trader whether to buy or sell a stock. You can bring in your computer into the exchange, and they, will, they are selling like a space. Uh, within the exchange, so you have your computer will have like um, high speed access to all the data that's coming into the exchange, uh, whether it be like order flow from different traders or the news that's going through the Bloomberg or or other news channels. Uh, it's all analyzed in real time. Uh, the speed of trading right now is is in nanoseconds, so like that's a billionth of a second. Uh, we can't even sort of think of that space. Uh, like by the time we blink the eye, it's about 17 milliseconds. Yeah. So within that, there are probably more than a thousand trades that have already happened. And the prices are moving so fast that even the prices we see on the, because it's, you cannot, that, that one billionth of seconds not even visible. So you cannot see the true prices at any moment in time because that is a stale price now. It's, it's a few millisecond, uh, stale. Wow. So, so uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No. So I was just uh, just mentioning that it's it's happening right now, and it has been happening for a long period of time. It it started in 1980s with all the program traders uh, taking advantage of um, uh, the latency arbitrage and the more so like index arbitrage, where they could do calculations much much faster than human can do. So, like for example, S and P 500 index. They have 500 stocks, uh, and then based on those 500 uh, stock prices, the index price is determined. But sometimes what happens is the index trades a little bit off than all the underlying 500 stocks. So there is uh, like an opportunity to benefit from that. But as a human, we cannot really calculate that fast at the like seconds or like in 1987. Let's say it was in in few seconds or a few minutes, that's really, really challenging for a human brain to do it. So with the computers, they were able to take advantage of that price differential between, diff um, like it's the same asset, but different ways to trade that. 
Right. Um, but do, this sort of sounds to me like it, does it does it create sort of a world of haves and have nots when it comes to trading that the only people who can really effectively trade are people who have access to to high powered computers? Yeah, that I think in the end, that probably is what's going to happen, like because see, 70 percent of the trading already moved um, uh, across the globe. Like it's not only in the U.S., but like look at Japan or London. Indian markets, um, they all, all sort of move towards this um, uh, facilitating or providing access to this um, high-speed network, like the, the high-frequency traders, we call them like a high-frequency traders. And so they, they, they get kind of a priority in some sense in all of these exchanges. And, and they have access to the data before I here in Morgantown, we are in Morgantown, West Virginia, by the time I hit the enter key, they already have seen my order flow, and, and so they can take advantage of the order that, that's out there. It's still looking for the counterparty in this space. They already know that the order is coming in. It's just like, like a big telescope looking through from New York or all the way to Morgantown that I left my house, and I should be in New York sometime soon. But they already know my route and, and, and what am I uh, driving and, and how fast can I get in here. And so... <laughs> If they have that kind of information, they can take advantage of that, right? So. Yeah. So, what does that mean for the you know for the average Joe who who maybe has their own investment account? Um, you're just buying and selling stocks. It's almost you know like the Stone Age versus the modern age, right? So, um, I mean, I get asked that question uh, several times. Like, basically, these high traders they are picking like pennies, pretty much. They're not really um, sort of trading like at, at mispricing like like at several dollars or hundreds of dollars. That's not their goal. They just they just try to earn like a few cents or even a cent on each trade. But they trade so many times. Like maybe they they execute millions of trades in a day. And so even if they are doing just a penny on each trade, each stock, they are generating a huge amount of money. Um, now. As a trader, when I submit the order, I might get, um, let's say, a penny more. It cost me slightly more than I would have initially paid. Um, but I mean, the whole point is during the extreme market condition, like think about the analogy I want to generate is about uh, like in the olden times when there were horse carriages, people right. used to travel from uh, place to place. Now, in, in case of accident, at least people will not die. But now with the cars and high-speed um, planes or trains, the accidents, the probability of accidents might be lower, but when that happens, the probability of death is much, much higher. Right. That's the way I see high frequency trading, the, the trading powered by these computers. The speed is so fast that just a slight um, sort of a oversight on anyone's part leads to billions of dollars of losses. Wow. Uh, uh, computers have been with us for a long time in the markets. Have there been any examples of where computers have really screwed up the market? Yeah. So there, um, there has been uh, several sort of incidences, like uh, basically in 1987, it's called the Black Monday event. Um, basically what happened was um, the program traders, back then the computers were not as sophisticated, but the market used to be really, really slow. And so any speed um, could have caused um, a, a kind of a major, major crisis. So what used to happen was uh, these program traders, they will take positions 
on, as I said, the index arbitrage. So when, when they look at the index prices and if they were off compared to underlying asset, then they will, they will take uh, bigger positions in either side of the market. And when the market goes really, really bad, like the black swan events happen, uh, and the, the other, before I get into the black swan, I just want to highlight there was a recent event, uh, not so recent, but in 2010, there was the first flash crash caused by high frequency trading. So basically within a few seconds, the market dipped like 10%. And then uh, later in the day, it, it went back up, uh, almost uh, recovered entirely. So it was kind of a V-shaped curve. Wow. And then the same thing we saw during the March uh, of 20, uh, 2020, when the COVID, due to COVID, the market uh, was impacted. We just saw like a steep decline in the market. And then again, a reshape recovery really, really fast. And I think this is all driven by these uh, computer-based traders. The problem that uh, this algorithm creates is basically twofold. The first one is the markets are competitive. So most algorithmic traders, the program traders, they have an incentive to have the best programs available out there. Now, the downside to that is pretty much everyone would have similar programs. And so when they are analyzing any event, which are especially the extreme events, the black swan events, then the computer gives them the same kind of response, either buy like very aggressively or sell very aggressively. So that's what happens in, um, in a flash crash kind of situation. Basically, if there's a bad news, then all of the computers just sell everything and get, get out of the market. Right. And so when that happens, think about the 70% on average, that's the volume by these computers, that 70% all of a sudden is, is disappeared. And when that is pulled out of the market, the market cannot sustain and it just dips. Yeah. And then, oh, go ahead. Um, then all of a sudden when they get back in, opposite happens. Then all of a sudden the prices gets a boost and then we see a recovery, which we never witnessed in the past. Yeah. And like you said, in, I, th I think it was 2010, uh, the market went, uh, it had a 10% differential in one day. So I'm guessing people who were doing this really high volume trading probably made a killing on that day. Would that be true? And, and wouldn't that kind of mean that they, they have an incentive for this volatility? Yeah. I mean, um, it is quite possible. Uh, now, unfortunately, the, um, the regulators have banned and then they have not required uh, trader identifications to be released. So most of the research sur surrounding these events are based on some proxies. Like, well, um, do we know if it was really a high frequency trading? And we know that because um, what in my research, what I found is uh, for every single trade, there are like, like uh, several orders. For example, in some cases for every single trade, there are about more than 200 orders that were placed for like at really fast nanosecond speed, like buy, sell, buy, sell. And, and you'll see the same volume. For example, it will say the tape might say like buy 10 stocks of Apple at $150. And then right after that, it will say sell 10 stocks of Apple at $150. And it keeps doing that for like every nanosecond, every few nanoseconds, I would say not every nanosecond, but like 250 nanoseconds or so, it keeps repeating that. And then we know that the humans cannot do it because we cannot even operate at that high speed. So we know the high frequency traders were very active at that time. And 
when they were all, and it was caused by a big, like a fat finger error. Some human entered too many zeros <laughs> to sell order. A fat said, finger well, they, error. They wanted to sell something like a million stock, and then they ended up selling like a billion stock. And that was picked by the computers because, again, the computers don't have that emotions. They don't think like, well, could this be an error? Yeah. They just react the way they are programmed. And they were programmed to sort of get out of the market as you see a big sell order. And that's what happened. It was an error. And then once they got out of the market, the market crashed. Then people got in and said, well, I think they, there is some mistake here. And so then they, they sort of jumped back in and then, and then uh, the market went back to normal. And what about the big investment firms and the big banks that we may have our in, in, uh, investment and retirement money in? Um, are, are they taking advantage of this kind of high volume artificial intelligence trading as well? The banks that we deal with? Yes. Right. So most banks actually have the investment side of it too. Now, um, like think of any bank, like, like Bank of America would have like, um, their, their high frequency side to it. So where they route the orders, uh, to their high frequency desk and it gets executed through uh, a computer program. Some of the banks, they, in the olden times, they used to use something called a smart algorithm. So what it does is it sits there like, um, uh, just a dormant computer program um, on the exchange, and it only shows a small part of the order. So it's like an iceberg order. We call them an iceberg order. So most of the order, let's say if they want to sell uh, 100,000 stocks of Apple on a given day, they don't. They do not want to show all of their cards. They just say like, "Oh, we just want to sell 100 stocks." And then once the 100 stock get executed, then they show another 100 stock and so forth. So right. those. Those are the things that uh, most of these uh, pension funds or they, they might use that. Now, our pension fund may not be as badly affected because, again, they, we are talking about these nanosecond uh, frequencies versus our pension uh, or um, retirement accounts. They are long-term investments. Now, the way they are affected is basically the volatility, the risk in the market that's being increased by these uh, high frequency traders. As I said, like during the extreme market conditions, uh, when the market, like in case of flash crash, the market fell within 30 minutes by 10%, which is extreme, never heard of in the past. And so if someone is trying to retire and like say the timing, you cannot really time uh, as you might have in the past because they were human, human traders and they cannot react that fast. So if I'm planning to retire, let's say next month, I don't, in the past, I didn't have to really worry about it because the market's not going to move that much, that drastically. But now, I don't know what the market's going to look like next month. <laughs> I mean, next day, next minute, for that matter. So, yeah. that, that risk has gone up substantially right. in the marketplace. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 